Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. This morning we're going to be looking at three verses, one from the Psalms and two from Luke chapter 1. My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Father, I ask that you would strengthen us in the hope of the fulfillment of every word that you have spoken to us, and that you would open this, your word, to us as we seek to hear from you. In Christ's name, amen. Last week, I asked you to consider something about the lives of the patriarchs. When you think about Abraham and Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph in the book of Genesis, that that these patriarchs received the promises of God, and yet, because they were the first, they stood farthest from the completion, the fulfillment of those promises. So if you imagine on a timeline, and you picture the birth of Jesus, and you think of that as the center point of human history, as indeed in our calendar, it still remains to this day, we can imagine the cross here at the center with B.C. on one side and A.D. on the other. And we trace all the way back to the days of Abraham when that first promise is made and consider how long, how much time passed from here, Abraham, to here, the cross. As we considered that time, And what that meant, we saw that that faith involved longing, that faith was going to require patience, and that faith would give hope to that period of waiting. But now, in Luke chapter 1, we fast forward from the farthest point to fulfillment to the nearest. As we approach the cross, we see in the lives of two people, Zechariah and Mary, that they stand very near to the fulfillment of God's covenant promises. And this morning we'll ask the question, how did fulfillment change the faith of Zechariah and Mary? Because fulfillment strengthens faith by giving us great encouragement to believe. When we see promises fulfilled, the fulfillment encourages us to continue in faith. If you look at Luke chapter 1, you have to wonder about whoever it was that divided these books into chapters and verses. You know the chapter and verse divisions are not part of the original text. This was done later. But Luke chapter 1 covers a lot of ground. It's a really lengthy chapter, and it begins in a pretty incredible way. The Gospel of Luke begins with the announcement of this miraculous birth, but it's not the one that you're thinking of. 
Now, we imagine the gospel beginning with the announcement of the miraculous birth of Jesus, but in fact, Luke's gospel begins with the announcement of the miraculous birth of John the Baptist when he goes to Zechariah, who will be the father of John the Baptist. The angel Gabriel is sent, and he makes two visits, one to Zechariah the priest, one to Mary the virgin. To Zechariah, he goes to announce the birth of John the Baptist, who will prepare the way. And to Mary, he goes to announce the birth of Jesus. Now, both Zechariah and Mary have reason to be skeptical that what this angel is telling them is actually going to take place. Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth are advanced in years. They're past the age of childbearing. They would have liked to have had a child, but it seems as if that ship has sailed or the angel has arrived too late. Mary, of course, is still a virgin. It seems inconceivable that what the angel tells her could possibly be, biologically speaking, true. So they have reason to doubt. And yet, in both cases, they also have what we might think of as strong inducements to believe. They have strong reasons to believe in the truth of what the angel is saying. Now, if you ask yourself what those reasons are, what those strong inducements are, there's an obvious answer that you might think of, and that's the presence of the angel. When an angel comes and tells you something's going to happen, you would imagine that's a strong inducement to believe that it's actually going to be taking place. And I imagine most of us, if you were asked, why do you believe that this thing that the angel told you is going to happen, would reply, because an angel told me. Interestingly, though, both Zechariah and Mary later are going to talk to us about the faith that they have, and neither of them will ground it in that. Neither one of them is going to say, I believed in what I was told because an angel told me. Instead, they'll point to a different source for confidence. They'll point to the history of God's faithfulness, to the history of his fulfillment of his covenant promises, his pattern of keeping his word to the children of Abraham. When they need to explain why they believed that what they were told was going to happen, they pointed to the fact that God keeps his promises. Again and again, Scripture testifies that this is the way God is. That was the inducement. That was the reason to have confidence. But Zechariah and Mary don't have an equal amount of confidence, an equal measure of faith, Zechariah actually has a pretty deep skepticism. If you look in Luke chapter 1, all the way from verse 5 through 24, Luke recounts the whole story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Uh, They are both righteous people before God. They are attempting to serve God as they should. Elizabeth desires to have a child, but is unable to bear a child. And so they have this unfulfilled longing in their own lives that we might think of as paralleling the unfulfilled longings of the people of God for a child to come. So Luke tells us that that's what they were like, that Zechariah was a priest. He was part of the company of Abijah And it was time for his company to rotate into service. And it was time for him 
to actually go up and offer incense in the temple. And as that was his responsibility, he entered into the temple and the multitudes were gathered outside. So you can imagine the people of Israel, they're outside, they're waiting. The priest enters in to do this thing. It's an interesting moment that I've reflected on as I've tried to imagine myself in Zechariah's shoes. Because you start off with the crowd. You start off with all the people. But then your responsibilities take you outside of the crowd into this house of God where you expect to be alone. But when he enters into that place where he's the only person who should be there, he finds an angel standing there waiting for him with a message from God. And he gives this message that John the Baptist is coming. Now, Zechariah, when he leaves the temple, is unable to explain to people what happened there. He comes out, clearly something has changed in his manner. They can see that he had some sort of vision while he was in there, but they can't get the details from him because when he comes out, he's unable to speak. He can just sort of gesture to try to convey what took place, but he has lost the power of speech. Why? Because he doubted. Because when he was told that a son would be born to him, the significance of this prophecy, he questioned whether or not what the angel told him was true. He said, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And guys, that is the way to, to put something like that. If you're having to say it, you don't say my wife and I are both old. You say I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. You speak more euphemistically, as I learned recently, uh, much to my pain. Uh, you've got to be sensitive, and, and Zechariah is at least sensitive, but he's not confident. He's skeptical. Even here, though, this is interesting, because as you think about that timeline, the question that he asks does bring us full circle, because what he asks Gabriel is exactly what Abraham asked God when a similar promise was made to him. Abraham found himself in the same boat in Genesis 15, where he's given this promise to him and his offspring, but he doesn't have offspring. He stands to, to lose everything. When he dies, it will all go to somebody else, not to a natural-born son of his. And so he questions, how am I to know that I shall possess it, possess this inheritance? Abraham asks God, how can I know that I will possess it if I have no heir to pass it down to? And then in Genesis 17 and 18, it continues. When Sarah hears the news, she laughs with skepticism at the absurdity of this promise that's being made to them. So you might think that Zechariah is in good company, and I guess in one sense he is, but he's also standing on the other end of that history of fulfillment. From the days of Abraham and Sarah, generation after generation, year after year, the God who made that promise had demonstrated over and over again that he's a keeper of his promises, that he fulfills his word. So for Zechariah, all those centuries later, to have the same question on his lips, it's as if none of that history ever happened. It's as if we're back to square one, and we don't know the kind of God whose promise this is. Gabriel answers him. 
He says, how am I going to know? Gabriel says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Because he didn't have confidence in the fulfillment of the word, he silenced as a kind of punishment or discipline. So the priest, who ought to be in the forefront of proclaiming the good news, is silenced instead. The one who ought to carry the message to the people emerges back to the people unable to speak. Because when he heard the promise, he just didn't believe that it could possibly come true. Despite the long history of God's faithfulness, he doubted. The contrast between Zechariah and Mary is not accidental. I don't think there's any way that you could read this text and believe that Matthew, or sorry, Luke doesn't intend for us to see the irony in the situation. Because Luke, starting in verse 26, recounts Gabriel's famous visit to Mary. Now, Mary does question. Mary does have a question for the angels. She says, how will this be since I am a virgin? But there's a difference in her question and in Zechariah's question. Mary doesn't question whether the word will come to pass. She questions how God will possibly accomplish it. How will God possibly do this impossible thing? It's as if she's asking the angel, not, not, I don't believe this can happen, but wait a second. Wait a second. Are you saying God is going to do the impossible? To which Gabriel answers, yes, for nothing will be impossible with God. There's a difference in the questions. A difference. Now, when Mary visits Elizabeth, Right after that, John the Baptist leaps in his mother's womb when he hears the sound of Mary's voice. And that prompts Elizabeth, who is filled with the Holy Spirit, to cry out. She says, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. An exact parallel. An exact parallel. Because Zechariah doubts. Because he does not believe, he is silenced. But because Mary believes she is blessed. As I say, that contrast is deliberate, and Luke intends for us to learn from it. There's a difference between uncertainty and doubt. God's ways are mysterious to us. We don't have to pretend otherwise. I don't care how familiar you are with the Bible. I don't care how many years you've spent in church. Uh, You may know it better than I do. But no matter how well you know it, most of what there is to know about God, we don't know. There are so many things that we can only, at best, speculate about, that we only know through analogy. 
So many things that are not revealed to us. And as a person of faith, you have to acknowledge the limits of your understanding. One of the things that faith insists upon is that we confront those limits. But the uncertainties of those who believe are different from the doubts of those who do not. Those who believe wonder how God will keep his word. Those who do not believe wonder whether God will keep his word. That's the difference. Wondering how he will do it versus wondering whether he will do it. If you're wondering how God will keep his word, you are in good company. Because throughout scripture, God fulfills his promises in the most unexpected and surprising ways. Sometimes by literally doing the impossible. So that people who believe that God always fulfills his promises have no clue how he intends to do it. And are constantly amazed with what he actually does. But if you're wondering whether God will keep his word, you're in a different situation. Because throughout Scripture, God has always fulfilled his promises. So doubting the fulfillment of his word is not leaving room for mystery. Doubting the fulfillment of his word is ignoring God's word. And even a righteous man like Zechariah is capable of such a thing. Even a priest is capable of such doubts. And even a righteous man is disciplined for such things, is punished for such things. Fulfillment throughout Scripture, the testimony that God keeps his word, is given to us as a gift to focus our longing. Whatever the differences are between Zechariah and Mary, they do have one thing in common. Both of them are longing for fulfillment. Both of them are longing for the fulfillment of the promises given to Abraham. Each of them eventually will sing a song. And by eventually, I just mean later in Luke chapter 1. It's a long chapter. But eventually, both of them will get to sing their commitments. Mary, in verses 46 through 55, sings what we call the Magnificat. where she sings praise to God for keeping his promises to his people. And Zechariah later, starting in verse 68, and when we confess our faith this morning, we'll use some of the words that Zechariah sings. So his silence comes to an end, and he too glorifies God. Both of those songs, if you compare them, have the same theme. God's covenant faithfulness in fulfilling his promise of salvation to his people. So there's a shared longing here. Both Zechariah and Mary share the longing of the psalmist that we find in Psalm 119. Uh, Psalm 119, rather lengthy psalm that's organized according to all the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. It could give Luke 1 a run for its money in terms of length. But buried in there in verse 123, the psalmist writes these words, "'My eyes long for your salvation.'" and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. As you look at those words, that's, that's Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry does not achieve its poetic effects through rhyme. It achieves them through repetition, so the restatement of ideas. Sometimes it says the same thing over again 
but in different words. Sometimes the second statement develops the original idea. But as you read these words, remember that this is poetry, and you'll understand that what he's talking about is not two different things. It's one thing. My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. The fulfillment of your righteous promise is another way of saying your salvation. That repetition is the poetic effect. Your salvation is synonymous with the fulfillment of your righteous promise. It's two ways of saying the same thing. People who long for God's salvation are longing for the fulfillment of God's covenant promises to his people and vice versa. God is not doing two different things in history. It's one thing. Salvation is the fulfillment of God's promises to his people. And that means salvation is so much bigger than we often realize. Salvation is for us as individuals, yes, but also for us as a people and also for the created world as well. All of God's promises are tied to his salvation. Longing for salvation means longing for everything good and vice versa. Longing for healing, for restoration, for justice, for glory. All of these longings are a longing for God's salvation. If we need a catch-all term, we can just say fulfillment with a capital F covers it all. All of it is what God has promised and all of it is what he will do. And every time he does something, every time he fulfills a promise, no matter how small, he gives us evidence that all of his promises will be fulfilled. The fact that he's fulfilled past promises does not take away our longing that he will fulfill the ones that have not yet been fulfilled. I'm not saying that if you read your Old Testament and you see God delivering and all his promises, you will suddenly stop longing for him to keep going and fulfill the rest. You won't. If anything, it will make you yearn more for that work to be completed. You'll say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, because the more of those little promises you see fulfilled, the more you'll want to see the big ones fulfilled. But it will have this effect. It will focus your longing you will discover that instead of a person whose longings are all over the place and, and, and oftentimes towards things that, that we shouldn't even long for, you're focused more and more on longing for him, longing for his salvation. The past gives us confidence for the future because what God begins, he finishes. If you doubt the coming of Christ in the future, the strongest inducement to faith is the coming of Christ in the days of Zechariah and Mary. If you doubt the future of God's plan, just look at the past of God's plan and see what he has already done. Zechariah and Mary longed for that fulfillment, and it was fulfilled, and your longing will be too. There is a difference between our longing and theirs, though. That difference is that we live in different times. We live in an era, an age of fulfillment. Over and over again in the Gospels, you see these words. This was to fulfill 
We saw them earlier in our lectionary reading when we got that fulfillment formula. This happened, Matthew says, in order to fulfill the prophecies, in order to make true the promises that God gave in the past. The Gospels collectively portray this age, our age, our time, as an age of fulfillment, where things that used to be mysterious are being brought out into the open, where things that used to be just promises are becoming real, becoming tangible, that these things are coming to pass. Since the coming of Christ, we live in an age of fulfillment. It's not that all of the promises have been fulfilled, but the fulfillment that we've already seen changes the way we long for the fulfillment of what's left. Because our hope is grounded in much greater knowledge than anyone before us could have possessed. So we do share their longing, but it's not the same because we have greater clarity. We can name what it is that we're longing for. And we have greater evidence than they did because there's been so much more fulfillment than what they had. And yet, as I say, Luke presents us with these two examples and contrasts them, I think, so that we can learn from them, take inspiration, see what kind of longers we ought to be as we long for the coming of Christ. What can we learn from Zechariah? And Zechariah does get to sing a song. Things do eventually work out for him, but there's a rocky road to get there because of his doubts that the word will be fulfilled. Well, even a priest with a face-to-face experience of the divine is capable of doubt. We sometimes tell ourselves, if only I knew more, if I could study scripture more, if I could take time out of my busy schedule and go to seminary, for example, and really learn all this stuff, or if somehow God would reveal to me in particular in some special way, like if God sent an angel to me, for example, then imagine the confidence that I would have. And yet we look at the example of, of this highly trained priest who saw the angel Gabriel face to face, straight from the presence of God. And if he was able to doubt, then so are we. So I guess we could say, don't feel so bad that you're as weak as Zechariah. Not to let us off the hook for our doubts, not to say, oh, that's fine, but to acknowledge that like him, we are human. And despite all that God has given us, we do still struggle. Now, in Zechariah's example, we learn something about that struggle, like the way that God bears with us patiently. It involves discipline. Like a loving father, God chastens those he loves. And in this case, Zechariah is chastened. He's unable to speak. This is a discipline that he receives. And as a result, he's not able to testify about what he's witnessed. He's not the center of attention. He's not the one that everybody remembers. Hey, you know that priest Zechariah? He was the guy who first clued us in to what was taking place. All of that taken from him. But when he was asked what his child would be named, he was given the power of speech. It was restored to him, and he's able to confirm what Elizabeth had said, that his name would be called John. He did have a role to play. He was disciplined by God, but not abandoned. Even though he doubted, God didn't give up on him. He didn't say, you know what? There's plenty of priests in Israel. I'll just get one who's not going to ask these questions. It's still Zechariah that proclaims 
the song of Zechariah, it just takes him a while to get there. And it may be that way with us as well. But when you're disciplined, don't imagine that you've been abandoned. Don't imagine that God has given up on you. That you, like Zechariah, may go through a period of profound doubt in the face of the evidence, in the face of the angels, and still have a song to sing to glorify God. What about Mary? What can we learn from Mary? If you look at Mary's song, one of the things that strikes me so much, this is true for Zechariah as well, but, but she's such a good covenant theologian. Like, her song is really grounded in, in a history of God's faithfulness. She knows her stuff. She has a knowledge of the way that God has worked in the past, and that knowledge bolsters her faith. And I think that's a good lesson for us as well. Knowledge for its own sake will puff you up. But if you have the kind of knowledge Mary did of the way that God works, and you use it the way that she did to be confident in his word, that would be the right way to live. It would be the right use of good theology. It's interesting, too, to recognize that unlike Zechariah, who was a priest, who was a man with great status, Mary is none of those things. Like Mary is betrothed, but not married. She will be found with child. She is going to be weak and vulnerable. She's not going to be as credible a witness as Zechariah would be. You might say she would have more excuses than him, though, to be skeptical. And yet it's just the opposite. The one who in human terms should be most receptive and the, the proper vehicle for this proclamation is not the one it comes through. Instead, Mary and her weakness and her very awkward, difficult, fragile situation, she's the one who has faith. And I think lights the way for us that in our weakness and vulnerability, we can have hope and fulfillment as well. That we similarly can trust in what God is doing. Having said all that, though, I think there's a, a greater lesson, a better lesson, a more important one. Perhaps the greatest lesson is this, that the fulfillment did not depend on their faith. Whether or not what Gabriel said came to pass did not depend on if the people who heard it believed it. Whether John would come didn't depend on whether Zechariah thought Gabriel was credible. Whether Jesus would come did not depend on whether Mary believed or not. Their belief, their confidence didn't make it happen. God made it happen. It was his work. Salvation was and is a work that God is doing in us. Not a work that depends on us for its accomplishments. It depended and still depends on Christ and Christ alone. I said earlier that the word salvation is just a synonym for the fulfillment of God's righteous promise and vice versa, that these two things are interchangeable and that is true as far as it goes. But those two things also stand for a third thing that is even more important. God's salvation and God's fulfillment of his righteous promises are also just synonyms 
for Jesus Christ. Just another way of saying Christ. Jesus Christ is God's salvation. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's righteous promise. The greatest lesson is not how he was received, whether he was received with confidence or with doubt. The greatest lesson, rather, is that he came, that he is coming again. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.